Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Ian. I'm Katie. And I'm Emily. We are three friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. Parties. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. So today's going to look a little bit different. At the beginning of the episode, I will be reading an excerpt from Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And then we'll do a follow-up interview with Anne Delano Steiner, who was on an earlier episode of this season, uh, talking about her love of Cincinnati. I'm reading to you a short story, and she talks about the personhood of the earth. And it's a really important thing because we think about the places that we love, our hometowns, or new cities, or our favorite vacation spots, and we think of them as things. There's something that we love, and they're really important to us, and we really love it, or we really love nature, but we're not thinking about them as someone. And so this short story called Epiphany in the Beans is really a beautiful love story about not only how we can love the earth, but how the earth loves us. And instead of a person loving a thing, it's people loving each other. I was hunting among the spiraling vines that enveloped my teepees of pole beans, lifting the dark green leaves to find handfuls of pods, long and green, firm and furred with tender fuzz. I snapped them off where they hung in slender twosomes, bit into one and tasted nothing but August, distilled into pure, crisp beaniness. This summer abundance is destined for the freezer to emerge again in deep winter when the air tastes only of snow. By the time I finished searching through just one trellis, my basket was full. To go and empty it in the kitchen, I stepped between heavy squash vines and around tomato plants fallen under the weight of their fruit. They sprawled at the feet of the sunflowers, whose heads were bowed with the weight of maturing seeds. Lifting my basket over the row of potatoes, I noticed an open furrow revealing a nest of red-skinned potatoes, where the girls left off harvesting that morning. They complain about garden chores, as kids are supposed to do, but once they start, they get caught up in the softness of the dirt and the smell of the day, and it's hours later when they come back into the house. Seeds for this basket of beans were poked into the ground by their fingers back in May. Seeing them plant and harvest makes me feel like a good mother, teaching them how to provide for themselves. The seeds, though, we did not provide for ourselves. When Sky Woman buried her beloved daughter in the earth, the plants that are special gifts to the people sprang from her body. Tobacco grew from her head, from her hair, sweet grass. Her heart gave us the strawberry. From her breasts grew corn, from her belly the squash, and we see in her hands the long-fingered clusters of beans. How do I show my girls that I love them on a morning in June? I pick them wild strawberries. 
On a February afternoon, we build snowmen and then sit by the fire. In March, we make maple syrup. We pick violets in May and go swimming in July. On an August night, we lay out blankets and watch meteor showers. In November, that great teacher, the woodpile, comes into our lives. And that's just the beginning. How do we show our children our love? Each in our own way by a shower of gifts and a heavy rain of lessons. Maybe it was the smell of ripe tomatoes or the oriole singing or that certain slant of light on a yellow afternoon and the beans hanging thick around me. It just came to me in a wash of happiness that made me laugh out loud, startling the chickadees who were picking at the sunflowers, raining black and white hulls on the ground. I knew it with a certainty as warm and clear as the September sunshine. The land loves us back. She loves us with beans and tomatoes, with roasting ears and blackberries and bird songs. By a shower of gifts and a heavy rain of lessons, she provides for us and teaches us to provide for ourselves. That is what good mothers do. I looked around at the garden and could feel her delight in giving us these beautiful raspberries, squash, basil, potatoes, asparagus, lettuce, kale, and beets. It reminded me of my little girl's answer to, How much do I love you? This much. With arms stretched wide. This is really why I made my daughters learn to garden, so they would always have a mother to love them long after I am gone. The epiphany in the beans. <laughs> I spent a long time thinking about our relationships with land, how we are given so much and what we might give back. I try to work through the equations of reciprocity and responsibility, the whys and wherefores of building sustainable relationships with ecosystems, all in my head. But suddenly there was no intellectualizing, no rationalizing, just the pure sensation of baskets full of mother love. The ultimate reciprocity, loving and being loved in return. Now the plant scientist who sits at my desk and wears my clothes and sometimes borrows my car, she might cringe to hear me assert that a garden is a way that the land says I love you. Isn't it supposed to be just a matter of increasing net primary productivity of the artificially selected domesticated genotypes, manipulating environmental conditions through input of labor and materials? to enhance a yield, adaptive cultural behaviors that produce a nutritious diet and increase individual fitness are selected for, what's love got to do with it? If a garden thrives, it loves you. If a garden fails, do you attribute potato blight to a, a withdrawal of affection? Do unripe peppers signal a rift in the relationship? I have to explain things to her sometimes. Gardens are simultaneously a material and a spiritual undertaking. Well, how do you know? How do you know it's love and not just good soil, she asks. Where's the evidence? What are the key elements for detecting loving behavior? Well, that's easy. No one would doubt that I love my children. Even a quantitative social scientist could find no fault with my list of loving behaviors. Nurturing health and well-being, protection from harm, encouraging individual growth and development, a desire to be together, generous sharing of resources, working together for a common goal, a celebration of shared values, interdependence, sacrifice by one for the other, creation of beauty. If we observed these behaviors between humans, we would say, 
She loves that person. You might also observe these actions between a person and a bit of carefully tended ground and say, she loves that garden. Why then, seeing this list, would you not make the leap to say that the garden loves her back? The exchange between plants and people has shaped the evolutionary history of both. Farms, orchards, and vineyards are stocked with species we have domesticated. Our appetites for their fruits lead us to till, prune, irrigate, fertilize, and weed on their behalf. Perhaps they have domesticated us. Wild plants have changed to stand in well-behaved rows, and wild humans have changed to settle alongside the fields and care for the plants, a kind of mutual taming. We are linked in a co-evolutionary circle. The sweeter the peach, the more frequently we disperse its seeds, nurture its young, and protect them from harm. Food, plants, and people act as selective forces on each other's evolution the thriving of one in the best interest of the other. This, to me, sounds a bit like love. I sat once in a graduate writing workshop on relationships to the land. The students all demonstrated a deep respect and affection for nature. They said that nature was the place where they experienced the greatest sense of belonging and well-being. They professed without reservation that they loved the earth. And then I asked them, do you think that the earth loves you back? No one was willing to answer that. It was as if I brought a two-headed porcupine into the classroom, unexpected, prickly. They backed away slowly. Here was a room full of writers, passionately wallowing in unrequited love of nature. So I made it hypothetical and asked, What do you suppose would happen if people believed this crazy notion that the earth loved them back? The floodgates opened. They all wanted to talk at once. We were suddenly off the deep end, heading for world peace and perfect harmony. One student summed it up. You wouldn't harm what gives you love. Knowing that you love the earth changes you, activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. My daughter Lyndon grows one of my favorite gardens in the world. She brings up all kinds of good things to eat from her thin mountain soil, things I can only dream of like tomatillos and chili. She makes compost and flowers, but the best part isn't the plants. It's that she phones me to chat while she weeds. We water and weed and harvest, visiting happily, as we did when she was a girl despite the 3,000 miles between us. Lyndon is immensely busy, and so I ask her why she gardens, given how much time it takes. She does it for the food and the satisfaction of hard work, yielding something so prolific, she says, and it makes her feel at home, in a place, to have her hands on the earth. I ask her, do you love your garden? Even though I know the answer. But then I ask, tentatively, do you feel that your garden loves you back? I am certain of it, she says. My garden takes care of me like my own mama. I once knew and loved a man who lived most of his life in the city, but when he was dragged off to the ocean of the woods, he seemed to enjoy it well enough, as long as he could find an internet connection. He had lived in a lot of places, so I asked him where he found his greatest sense of place. He didn't understand the expression. I explained that what I wanted to know was where he felt most nurtured and supported. What is the place that understands you best? 
that you know best and knows you in return. He didn't take long to answer. My car, he said. In my car. It provides me with everything I need and just the way I like it. My favorite music, seat position fully adjustable, automatic mirrors, two cup holders. I'm safe and it always takes me where I want to go. Years later, he tried to kill himself in his car. He never grew a relationship with the land, choosing instead the splendid isolation of technology. He was like one of those little withered seeds you find in the bottom of the seed packet, the one who never touched the earth. I wonder if much that ails our society stems from the fact that we have allowed ourselves to be cut off from that love of and from the land. It is medicine for broken land and empty hearts. Larkin, my daughter, used to complain mightily about weeding, but now when she comes home, she asks if she can go dig potatoes. I see her on her knees unearthing red skins and Yukon golds and singing to herself. Larkin is in graduate school now, studying food systems and working with urban gardeners, growing vegetables for the food pantry on land reclaimed from empty lots. At-risk youth do the planting and hoeing and harvesting. The kids are surprised that the food they harvest is free. They have had to pay for everything they have ever gotten before. They greet fresh carrots straight from the ground with suspicion at first until they eat one. She is passing on the gift and the transformation is profound. Of course, much of what fills our mouths is taken forcibly from the earth. That form of taking does no honor to the farmer, to the plants, or to the disappearing soil. It's hard to recognize food that is mummified in plastic, bought and sold as a gift to anyone. Everybody knows you can't buy love. In the garden, food arises from partnership. If I don't pick rocks and pull weeds, I am not fulfilling my end of the bargain. I can do these things with my handy opposable thumb and capacity to use tools to shovel manure. But I can no more create a tomato or embroider a trellis in beans than I can turn lead into gold. That is the plant's responsibility and their gift, animating the inanimate. Now there is a gift. People often ask me what one thing I would recommend to restore a relationship between land and people. and My answer is almost always plant a garden. It's good for the health of the earth, and it's good for the health of people. A garden is a nursery for nurturing connection, the soil for cultivation of practical reverence, and its power goes far beyond the garden gate. Once you develop a relationship with a little patch of earth, it becomes a seed itself. Something essential happens in a vegetable garden. It's a place where if you can't say I love you out loud, you can say it in scenes, and the land will reciprocate in beans. And now we turn to our interview with Ann Steiner to talk about how physical place is so important to understanding the continuum of human experience and existence. And there's this quote in this interview that she has that I want you to listen for. She says, I am not alone in the world. And the way she remembers that and talks about that and experiences that is something that I think we all need to remember. So the other thing, Anne Steiner, that you really, the thing that you really love in your life and you've talked about is the city, this city where you yep. and I are right now and where Anne Rothis lived for a number of years. Um, 
do you remember knowing, oh, this place where I'm from, in fact, I love maybe even more than just because it's the place I'm from? Or did that sort of happen over time? Well, I should say that, you know, I also lived in New York City for a long time and I also love New York City. So yeah. there, it's not just Cincinnati. I'm, I'm definitely drawn to cities and I didn't, I don't think I recognized it at the time, but I have a couple sort of moments um, stick out in my mind that I went to preschool in a place in Cincinnati on the East, in the East end, we would drive home every day down um, a street that is now called Martin Luther King. At the time it was called Mellish, but there was this building on a corner that, or in fact, there were two buildings uh, probably about six blocks or five blocks away from each other. And I was captivated by these buildings. Like I just felt, I was so moved by them. And I, you know, and I knew that those buildings had stories to tell that there were like there were there were physical embodiments of the past right that they were primary documents that would if i could just understand the language that they were speaking i would know so much about the past you know i would know about generations of kids one of them was a school generations of kids who had passed through the halls of school and and how their lives had changed and what you know what had they had seen and what they had experienced and so that that's the thing that makes me really love Cincinnati and cities is this idea that um, there are just strewn throughout the streets, like these documents of the past everywhere we go, you know, that like any building, you know, is like I used to think in high school, I used to think like if I put my hand on this building in this place, who else's hand has been here? Like what who, what person's hand was here a hundred years ago or 120 years ago? Like what were they wearing? What did they have for dinner? What, what, you know, what did they care about? And, and it all really kind of comes back around that like there's this continuity of human experience that like you might be wearing a corset and you might, uh, you might go home to a guy who, you know, drives a, livery a bunch of horses and does deliveries for a brewery and smokes a cigar in a saloon at night <laughs> but like but our human experience is the same like you you in 1880 putting your hand against this building and me in 2000 putting my hand against this building like we both love our kids we both you know fear like you know i don't know look to explain why the world is the way it is like there's this incredible continuity across time i actually one of my favorite poets is sappho who yeah is most known because the, she's from the isle of lesbos and that's where the word lesbian comes from because sappho was uh, a woman who loved women who lived on the isle of lesbos but there's a you know, most of Sappho's work was destroyed and is only has only been found it because it was recopied and deposited in libraries, ancient libraries, or found in fragments. So because it was written on papyrus and papyrus was very strong and worth uh, was valuable, when they shredded uh, Sappho's work, they would reuse the papyrus. And um, so there were uh, coffins and other things that were sort of re covered in this these shreds of her writings and so they have these little fragments well there's this fragment and i couldn't tell you right now off the top of my head which poem it's from but there's this fragment where she talks about her daughter lacing the ribbons on her sandals and to me that has always been like such a moving it's about a physical object and it's about uh an everyday occurrence that you have to lace the ribbons on your shoes, you know, to tie your sandals through your toes or whatever. And like, I could do that exact same thing. And yet 
Sappho is beautifully writing about this everyday occurrence that happened 2000 years before I was born. And yet there's a continuity across our lived experience. And to, to me, that's really why studying history is valuable. And that's what's important about it is it like knits us together in this continuity of human experience across time. It says that I'm not alone in the world. Like I'm not, this isn't just my one little life in my burrow where I'm going to go and hole up and just have my 80 years and then check out and it's all over. But that in fact, the things I do and the emotions that I have are are continuous part of human existence across time, you know? That's just like a mic drop moment. That's so amazing. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And connecting oh. people to the place, like connecting ourselves to each other, uh, but also, um, I think that there's some language that's really come into the zeitgeist in the last 10, 20 years about being a present. And I think feeling connected to the place where you are can really help with that. Like uh, when I when I moved to Cincinnati, uh, so uh, Anne mentioned she and I are both Lymeys. We both have Lyme disease, which has significantly influenced the trajectory of our lives. Um, when I moved to Cincinnati, I was moving back out of my parents' house uh, after a long time living with them. And that was home and that was comfortable. And I had a lot of fear about, about living by myself and living away and living away from my home, which was Columbus. And it was really helpful for me. And Ann Snyder wasn't the only person who did this, but she's one of the first per people who did this, who kind of told me like, this can also be one of your places and here's how, and you can know it. Like I went on her tours around the city, <laughs> um, she made tours. Um, and I had other friends who just like invited me to like attend cultural events in Cincinnati. And it's like, it became a part of me and my story. And then I felt like I had a stake here and like I could claim it. And that was really helpful. Not only, in, I mean, the, I had to have the, this could not have happened without the individual personal connections and relationship. And Ann Roth is a big part of that. Um, but another piece that was super helpful was making me feel like this actual city uh, could belong to me that and that I could belong to it yeah. and learning the city is part of that. It's a huge part of that. And I actually um, am just beginning at the very, very early stages of a big community history initiative. That's just rooted in that exact idea that um, there's a neighborhood in Cincinnati called Avondale that has been really neglected for a long time. It's a home to a, um, a large low income African-American population. And there are some a lot of negative uh, narratives about Avondale, most of which are totally fabricated. <laughs> but um, I'm I'm helping some community organizations create a local history initiative in Avondale with that very idea that when you know the place, when you understand how it came to be the way it is, and you um, are connected to it physically, that you it is your place. You belong there, right? So I feel like I have this set of skills as a historian and sure, I could use them for my own work. You know, I can hole up in an archive or a library and research stuff and write scholarly articles that like 12 people will read or, and I do that. I mean, I have a scholarly article coming out next month. I mean, you know, if that's, I do that. Um, but I also have the, the same set of skills I can use to make 
history and physical place and and living in cities um, accessible and knowable and legible to everyday people. And I feel like that's part of what I'm like required to do, you know, like that's the thing that I am driven or pulled or called to do.